Hello there. Welcome to Broadcast Interrupted. I'm Chirag. And I'm Andy. Who are we interrupting on this week's episode, Chirag? On this week's episode, we are interrupting Jake Spring, journalist working for Reuters, reporting on environment and commodities in Brazil, the host of the Foreign Correspondents Podcast, and the cat lover we both need and deserve. Why are we interrupting this fine man? Because he introduced us to one of the most awesome Instagram pages, Cats of Brutalism. You were really holding that one in there, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. But on a more serious note, I met Jake when we were both working in Beijing, mm-hmm. in China. Mm-hmm. I was working as an architect and he was also working for Reuters covering the automobile industry in China at the time. Uh-huh. It was around 2015, 16. And um, having known him for a while, I think s- s- there are certain very specific things about his profession that always fascinated me, especially about how laborious it is. Mm-hmm how ubiquitous it is in the world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, especially in this moment, Mm -hmm. it's in a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what we never really understand Mm -hmm. are the various principles, the inner workings, and the forms of this profession. That is precisely actually what uh, piques my curiosity when speaking with him all the time yeah mine too and i also think what is super interesting is the fact that he hosts this podcast called foreign correspondence where he brings journalists from all over the world to share their journeys and their stories (laughs) but chirag there's this quirky little detail that has to be mentioned As a journalist, his two major, most uh, longer, let's say, assignments have been in national capital cities like Beijing and Brazil. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, right. You're right. He's currently reporting from Brasilia in Brazil, which is a capital. And for that would ring a bell for a lot of architects out there. Definitely. Modernism. Not just that, though. There's something to be said about also his insights on how spaces that host power, political mm-hmm. power, mm-hmm. commercial power, uh, social power uh, are perceived. Mm-hmm. As, an, as a journalist, you see, he has very specific access to these spaces, these buildings, these architectures. And all its inner workings, as you as you said earlier, mm-hmm. and I think uh, that's quite uh, an interesting set of observations that he makes during the course of our conversation on this podcast. Oh yeah, I mean, between knowing that he was supposed to be a math major who dropped out to pursue his interest in Asian studies, yeah, to discussing what it means for us as architects to use concrete as a material in our buildings, I think we covered a lot of ground. We definitely did. A wide range. So, let's dive into the world of Jake Spring. 
journalist, podcaster, and cat lover. Hi, Jake. Hey, how's it going? Good. So, Andy Shrag. <laughs> so, I think we should begin with an introduction of yourself from you for all the people who are listening and looking at this. Uh, sure. Where where should I start? I guess I'll just start give you where I'm at right now. I'm right now sitting in Brasilia, in the center of Brazil. I've lived here about going on four years now. Um, I'm a journalist, work for Reuters News Agency. I report on environment and uh, commodities and regulation here in Brasilia. But there aren't too many of us, so I kind of do whatever as necessary a lot of the time. And uh, yeah, I uh, used to live in China before for six years, and that's where I knew Andy. Uh, but I mean, how did you end up in Brasilia? Uh, just out of curiosity. Well, uh, so I was living in Beijing, and that's where I met my now wife, uh, Viviana, at a bar called Four Corners. And uh, yeah, the kind of the rest is history. I'd never thought about Brazil before. I started learning Portuguese. I could not find a Portuguese teacher in Beijing. Like I at one point took the train for like two hours west of the city or east of the city rather, and uh, like went to a teacher there, but it was just not worth it at all. So I did it all on my own, did all Duolingo, did all Pimsleur, showed up, figured it out. And uh, yeah, I've been here for four years. I mean, Reuters was pretty good about transferring me. If you have a personal reason, they're usually pretty understanding and uh, it doesn't get more personal than having a Brazilian wife. So <laughs> it all worked out. So it, it it was it was it was like an internal. You just got to fill up a form or something, and then they're like, "It's okay, you can." No, there there needs to be a job opening. Um, I did interview for two other positions before I got this one here in Brasilia, um, for like to report on Petrobras in Rio de Janeiro to do agriculture in Sao Paulo, and I ultimately got this one here in Brasilia. I mean, Brasilia has a very weird reputation, which we'll probably get into. Like my wife was not terribly pleased when I got a job here because, I mean, it's, you know, one of these fake created cities in the middle of the country and Brazilians everywhere view it as kind of this weird place. Like no Brazilian's going to go, oh, Brasilia, great. Like, <laughs> you know, they're all like, why would you want to live there? Like, we don't get it. Um so, so yeah, I mean, but the job is great. I mean, I'm in the center of the country. It's the closest to everywhere um, by plane, like you could want to get. Um, so, yeah, no complaints. Is, 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 would you also endorse the, the cliche about Brasilia after four years? Uh, I don't know. I think it's a lot nicer than people give it credit for. I mean, it's got very, very low crime. I mean, the weather is kind of the same year round. We're in a particularly heavy rainy season, but it's not usually this bad in terms of rain. I mean, 78 degrees, 30, whatever that is, Celsius, 30 some degrees, low 30s Celsius. Um, weather's great. I mean, it's extremely green city. Uh, you know, you're very close to government. Uh, life is convenient. Life is nice. I mean, is life exciting? Is it culturally vibrant? No, it is not. But uh, if you want to be comfortable, it's not a bad place. Yeah, then that's. I think that sounds pretty. But is it? How do you compare it with Beijing? Like your six years stint in Beijing, life there, and then here in Brasilia. I mean, Brasilia is the complete, complete opposite. I mean, Beijing 
I mean, the weather is terrible most of the time. It's so <laughs> smoggy and like traffic and everybody's kind of like has this general rage about how difficult it is to do even small things like go across town and meet up with your friends. But I mean, you get that stuff in New York City, too, and things like that. Whereas here in Brasilia, like you can get everywhere in 20 minutes or less. Like I can walk to three grocery stores like there are a million parks around like uh, and I mean, in terms of work, you know, Brazilians are the opposite of the Chinese. Like the Chinese are very closed. Brazilians are very open. It's very hard to get people to trust you and speak to you as a journalist in China. I mean, the Chinese people are very, very friendly, I would say, in general. But when it comes to, you know, talking to a journalist, it's a different, different thing entirely. So, I mean, here, like the government's right here and it's very easy to get access to anybody you want, kind of. Okay. And before you were in Beijing, were, were you working anywhere else before that or right out of the right out of school or university you started working directly as a foreign correspondent in Beijing how how was that what was the what no was I I graduated in 2009 so the economy was terrible moved to New York I worked at a literary agency briefly uh, which like represents authors and sells their books and then I freelanced and then I was out of money And then I moved back to my parents' house. And then I got a job in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, working on a newspaper there yeah. and kind of saw how, you know, uh, I don't know, things weren't going very well in the newspaper industry. And so I kind of picked up and moved to China because I thought, you know, I'd have better prospects there. You know, I saved up $3,500, like scrimped and saved, like calculated out my groceries and stuff like that. And then, you know, that was enough for a plane ticket and get me set up with rent in China. So I uh, took a big gamble and paid off pretty good. I mean, that sounds... But if I remember correctly, you ended up in Shanghai first, right? Well, it's confusing. I, I landed in Beijing. I got an apartment in Beijing. And I lived in Beijing for all of two months before I got a job in Shanghai And, uh, you know, I didn't expect to live in Shanghai. And I, you know, uh, the guy said, uh, okay, we'll interview you next week, but you got to come here. So I hopped on a train, went down. Luckily, I had a friend who was there. I crashed on his floor. He was living in an attic of some old house <laughs> in Shanghai. These kind of old houses back in alleyways that haven't been knocked down. And uh, hey, yeah, yeah. I And it, it worked out. And it's great because otherwise, like, you have to pay your rent three months at a time in yeah. China, a lot of places. And I was out of money. You have to leave the country every three months on the visa I was on. Like, things were going to go south really, really quick. But it came together, thankfully. I had this cockamamie plan to be a freelancer. But, like, you know, three months is not enough time to get set up on that. You need a year or two to probably... <laughs> Uh, make that work so, so if if i didn't get it wrong you one after working at uh, in south carolina carolina you said all right it's not my scene and then what was how did you choose china so i studied asian studies in college it was asian and middle eastern studies technically because they had to put them all together put us all together because there weren't that many of us there were only nine people with that major in my graduating class and you know half of them studied something about the middle east like completely different they've since separated them now asian studies and middle eastern studies are separate which i think makes sense to me 
Um, but that means I took, you know, three years of Chinese. I took Chinese language. I took Chinese history. I took Chinese uh, uh, literature. I don't think I took any Chinese art. That would have been cool, but I don't think that was offered. So, uh, yeah, that's what I did. So, I mean, China made a lot of sense to go back for me, I think. I, I, in fact, I probably should have gone back sooner, but I was lucky that I didn't because of various visa rules in China. And it's difficult to get a job there if you're less than 25. So it's probably good I didn't go right away. You said go back. So you did visit China while you were studying as well. Yeah, I lived in China for 2007-2008 as a study abroad student. Okay. I stayed for the summer of 2008 so I got to go to the Olympics and uh, I worked at a magazine there and had an internship. Um so that was really cool and so yeah, yeah, I mean, uh I'm not sure why I didn't think to go back right away, but uh I don't know. I don't know. It was a good it worked con. out at least. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> eventually I think it all worked out and it's it's fine. What you spoke about taking Asian studies at uh, at the university, which which university was it? So it was Northwestern University, which uh, has, I would say, the best journalism school in the country. So people here at Northwestern and they go, ooh, and I'm like, oh, but I didn't study journalism. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's it's a, a very good school. But, uh, but it rubs off you know, on you, yeah. right? A little bit. You know, I, I stayed in the communications uh, dorm. And so I was with all journalism and film students mostly. And I took all of three journalism classes, but kind of realized I didn't need to take 12 journalism classes. And it all I wouldn't have been able to study abroad and do all the things I was doing without with a journalism degree. Like they just don't make it easy for you to leave campus for a whole year. And uh, and I worked at the student newspaper, so I, I learned a lot there. The Daily Northwestern, it was put out every day. It was like an actual job. I got a paycheck, not much money, but, uh, you know, uh, it was something. But then uh, what were the courses or what were the subjects or classes that you took while at North, Northwestern? Well, beyond the Chinese, China, Chinese literature, language, history, um, you know, Chinese political economy, things like that. And then, I mean, when I first arrived, I was a, a math major. I had gotten uh, the highest score on the AP calculus test. So they said, oh, What? you qualify for this, uh, you qualify for this special math program. And I was like, oh, and my, my friend who I went to high school with and also went to Northwestern, he was doing it. So I was like, oh, I should do this. So I started doing it and it, we had a great professor at first, like this really funny younger guy, probably 40, who would like joke around and things like that. And uh, I really liked it for a couple of, we had uh, quarters or they're really trimesters at Northwestern. And, um, and then we got switched to some, some guy who like, there weren't enough students anymore. They whittled it down to one class who insisted on being called Dr. Franks and was like old and very dry. And like, you know, professor wasn't good enough for him. <laughs> like, uh, so, and then I got, I ended up in some chaos theory class, um, with, a, it was such a funny scene. Like, you know, there's a guy with Tourette's in front of me. He's like a mathematical genius, but he'll like shout at the professor during this class. And I was just in there Whoa. with all these oddballs who were obviously like savantish. And I was like, 
and I could memorize the stuff and do it, but I couldn't like think creatively about it like these guys could. And I realized like, what, what am I doing here? Like I can memorize enough to pass this class, but then I need to like get out of here. Um, I remember me and like, uh, the one other normal guy who like would study together and like, best friends like, for what life. Is, what is going on? Um, Why are we doing but, this? Uh, yeah, well, that teacher was great. And I do remember going to my advisor and uh, him being like, you know, maybe you shouldn't be a math major. And when your advisor <laughs> is like, maybe you should do something else. It's a sign. It's a sign. And then what um, was that something else that was the move to... But wait, I, I have or... to say something. I I did not either. I missed this particular detail in all the years that I've known you. But I I think I'm talking to a totally different person now because math calculus <laughs> that's that's your that's your foundation. We're gonna have to rethink <laughs> this friendship, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in high school, we had a really good uh, math teacher who, you know, got people. Uh, into it. And I don't know, I've always been very, very good at memorizing things. Um, mm. And that's why I was good at math, which at, in the long run is actually not the skill you need in mm -hmm. math. You need to be able to like Creative. really like grok it yeah. and be able to like roll around it and, and the, you know, uh, play around with it because like that's, that's how you get places. Yeah. The basics you can just memorize, but you can't do a proof like it's not like solving an equation it's like you don't know where it's necessarily going to oh, go yeah. and all the steps and stuff like that so so yeah and i mean i would say the memorization is also why i took to chinese because it's a lot a lot of rote memorization um to learn chinese and uh i mean i guess you could learn any language that way but like the way specifically you know, even Chinese people learn Chinese growing up is a lot of rote memorization. So I just uh, took to that, you know, it's not, not a lot of grammar. It's like you memorize the words, you put the words next to each other. It works. It so works. that that really funny. spoke to me. So I started taking that my second year right as I was ending as a, a math major. And then I was going to be a history and economics major, but then I went to China and that all went out the window and I went with Asian studies. But then when you landed up in China and started working for this magazine, you already had a sort of um, inclination towards journalism or something like that? Or it was more like, a, uh, yeah, I'm here and I need to find myself something to do. I mean, how did you sift through getting the job that you took up as an intern also? Um. So, excuse me. So I was in high school, I worked at my student newspaper. I was like the editor in chief of that newspaper. And then in college, I worked at the Daily Northwestern, a daily paper mm -hmm. there. And so I knew I wanted to do journalism. So that's why I went for that internship. You know, I kind of always wanted to be a journalist. Uh, that was always plan A, you know, I might've considered other things at other times graduating in the financial <laughs> crisis, but, um, I don't know, like there was a time when I was working at this literary agency that I would like tell people I wanted to be a literary agent. And that was just a fucking lie. Like, <laughs> you know, so I was just like, I need a paycheck. I need to work as anything, but yeah, thank God I didn't take a job in PR or something else just because I had that little brief, difficult period. I'm glad I stuck with it and 
you know, figured it out, even if I had to move back in with my parents briefly. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, when you were, so there was China and now there's Brazil. And you mentioned earlier that you report on environment and commodities. Yep, that's right. And what were you reporting on when you were in China? Was it the same? So in China, uh, China first, I worked at a magazine called China Economic Review, which as the name might suggest, was about economics um, and business. And we, we that was a good job. We got to write pretty broadly about everything, but it was, yeah, you know, economy, labor, sorts of things like that, um, mining and energy. Um, and then I got the job at Reuters and... I was at first on the economy desk. I was just as a trainee and then they moved me to finance. And then I was uh, placed as like the automotive reporter after my training period was over. And so I did automotive reporting for about two years. And that's right when electric cars were blowing up in China, blowing up like the market was expanding <laughs> crazily. Uh, the government was uh, <laughs> incentivizing them yeah. and uh and so it was a lot of electric cars and it was a lot of self-driving cars. It was actually pretty cool, a lot of technology stuff. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Um, that's that, that's how... It, oh, uh, I mean, the reason I asked this is because also you mentioned just a few minutes ago is that you did interview for many other uh, departments... Uh, within other sort of uh, news uh, or desks or desks like like, like you call it uh, yeah how does that kind of how does this shifting of desks work how do you is that normal in journalism like do people uh, work in diff on at different desks because you know the the notion we have is almost like and that the profession is so specific. And once you're doing something with an architecture or other such professions that we know of, you are uh, focused within a certain topic uh, and then you keep working at it or something. But I don't know, how does that work in... Yeah, I mean, so there's... Uh, obviously, there's a bare minimum amount of time you can do anything. And I mean, usually most journalists, you know, they'll focus on one thing for two, three, four or five years. Um, I mean, some people decide they want to do just that one thing and they focus in and they'll stick with it. And, uh, but a lot of journalists, I would say, you know, change jobs every five years and report on something else. And, uh, some, you know, sometimes it's Jason, sometimes it's, you know, it's just being able to convince people you can do the job and within a company that's a lot easier. Like, so I had to apply for these jobs internally within Reuters and they would also interview external candidates, but obviously they know my experience and they know, you know, uh, my track record with them more intimately than, you know, people coming from outside the company. So that definitely helps. So, so it is a competitive application process, but uh, obviously within the same company, it's helpful. I would say, you know, most people can't move companies, move topics and move countries at once. So like I couldn't move to the U S and work for, uh, the wall street journal and report on, I don't know, uh, debt or something like that. Like it would be easier to move to Reuters with Reuters to another country and do that. Um, so it's, it's almost impossible to change all three at once. So um, there's usually some sort of 
connectivity Con- between continuity, one job and the next. Yeah. 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 I, it's also a very interesting question for us as architects because you know, we often find ourselves doing working on a let's say a commercial project or a bank or a restaurant or a house from one day to the next. Uh, of course, we don't design everything in a day, but we we often find ourselves jumping between these sites, sorts of uh, differences. But there's something for sure where if we are designing a bank, we we don't need to really know the subject matter of that sort of profession or the or the discipline. We need to know what architect what's expected of the architecture in a way. Uh, but with journalism, it seems like you would have to learn the subject matter and the specifics and the nuances really, really fast. What's that? What's that training period like? Like if you jump from automobiles to uh, I don't know environment or environment, yeah. How's that jump really like? I mean, you learn as you go, as with. You know, that's a big thing in journalism. Like a lot of people don't actually ever train as journalists. They just kind of learn things on the job. And it goes both ways. Some people say, oh, it's good. You just showed up. You've got fresh eyes. You won't, you'll see things that we Ah, won't see because we're too inert to it. So, you know, maybe you'll see stories that we don't see. Um, That said, I mean, you do learn more about the subject. And I would say probably do get better stories the longer you do it if you're able to keep you know, a bit of those fresh eyes, but, uh, you know, it's, what would I say? I guess so. And over time, the other thing is just that people get to know that, oh, Jake reports on environment and they'll come to me with information. They'll come to me with reports or tips or whatnot. They'll, Mm -hmm. you know, send me what they're hearing. And once, you know, you're known, people will bring stories to you and it's not always you having to go out and get them. Hunt them. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is this? Uh, you said you work or you report on commodities. What is the commodities aspect? What does it entail? So, uh, I guess just for you and your viewers, listeners, I mean, I work at a wire service. So, wire services are, you know, these days it's a screen, it's a software, and it just, you know, ticks information by you and like you can set it to just see Reuters and every time somebody files a story or headline it goes by you um and uh, this is part of a financial software for people who you know trade stocks bonds commodities that sort of thing um so i write for these people and i also write for like reuters.com and for newspapers that use use our stuff so i guess i would say the commodities stuff is more for those financial readers, whereas the environmental stuff is more for general readers. Not all the time, you know, there's some crossover. So commodities, you know, it can be anything. It can be, you know, China permitting more uh, meat factories in Brazil to export. And, you know, that'll affect the stock price of, you know, whatever JBS, BRF, the world's largest, uh, some of the world's largest meat companies or, you know, a a bit of regulation, a WTO dispute with, say, India over sugar that they have. And, you know, they'll announce that 
you know, they're going to file a complaint or whatever, or they're going to drop their complaint or, you know, it, it's these kind of things that you won't see a lot on like my Twitter feed, but is kind of something, you know, I'm doing, it helps pay the bills, you know, the financial subscribers pay a lot for the service. Um, so even if you don't <laughs> see a lot of that coming out of my social media and stuff like that, it is, you know, a significant chunk of what I do. And, you know, just interviews, you interview the the agriculture minister or the mines and energy minister, and you ask them about their priorities and things like that and try to get new information out of them, that sort of thing. But then when you say it's a, it's sort of like a ticker, the, the format that you are uh, playing with here is, are like uh, factual one-liners uh, that you're putting out there? So it's both. I mean, if it's uh, straight new information like, you know, uh, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro says he wants to lower diesel prices, like that would be something I put out in all caps, you know, one line. And then uh, there are others that are just stories and you you see the headline and you can click on it and there's more information. The ones that are one-liners show up in red in all capitals and the other ones show up in white and lowercase. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, if you're looking at this and you really set the widest parameters possible, like this thing is scrolling really fast, like tons of information coming through, um, you know, so if you don't want to miss any information, like it, it's very good. If you're like a, you know, like I said, a financial reader and you can't afford to miss information. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff you can still find online mm-hmm. and things like yeah. that. If you're a normal person, uh, you'll just won't get it quite as fast. Um, okay. I guess a lot of ro- robots trading, uh, you know, programs, high frequency trading and stuff like that probably relies on this sort of information. It's probably a pretty important revenue source of revenue for Reuters too. Huh? Yeah, right now it provides direct... about. We're pretty open about this. It provides about half of uh, Reuters news is revenue. We we sold off the financial side of it. Now we just have a set contract. Um, I believe London Stock Exchange owns that now. Um, who aren't a bad client to have, but nice. uh, yeah, got a long term reliable contract with them which in journalism is more guarantee than just about anything gets yeah. in terms of finances but these and you with, with these desks which report on commodities you have one person sitting in every uh, major city in the world or no i mean let's see in in brazil you know a lot of the finance and company corporate reporters in sao paulo you know, in Rio, like it's a lot of um, oil and mining, you know, in Brasilia, it's a lot of government coverage, you know, whether it be more on the economic side or more on the environment and commodities side or more on the like pure politics uh, side, you know, not not business related, not commodities related politics. I've got a coworker who covers that. So, I mean, it depends on the issue in the the city, like obviously in some places, it's it's much easier to concentrate people like in the problem with uh, Brazil is, you know, the cultural capital is in Rio, the economic capital is in Sao Paulo and the political capital is in Brazil, <laughs> Brasilia. Yeah. Some places that city is all the same city. The capital city is the cultural, is the financial center. And in that case, you know, it's easier to just have one big office there with everybody um, covering things. 
but then you have uh, also across the world uh, people sitting in major cities reporting on commodities one desk dedicated to this and i think the whole feed is comprised of all this information coming together at the same time uh, right yeah you can set it to you know some major verticals like commodities or energy or general news is one or you know metals it can get pretty specific you can set the parameters for what kind of information you want flowing in um so yeah i mean it it depends but you know for example on commodities you know you'll have uh, people reporting on uh, uh agriculture commodity prices in chicago and new york you'll have you know people reporting on mining in probably like toronto and south africa and countries where mining is very big australia certainly you know uh, so so it kind of depends um but reuters is yeah a big a huge organization like we're the largest news organization in the world in terms of number of journalists mm-hmm. bloomberg is very close but they count analysts and i don't know that they're <laughs> actually journalists uh so so yeah i don't even know the full extent of it All right. do, do you personally uh is there a person to person network that you rely on on a daily basis or is the wire the ticker service uh completely automated and now you don't have to personally make a phone call to quickly clarify stuff or globally i mean uh i guess i don't know what you mean exactly with fellow um, journalists like if you if you are reporting on something that depends on some bit of news coming out of australia are you going to make a phone call to reuters australia to clarify something or you don't actually uh, not necessarily i mean we'll send an email if like you know it's a rolling story say uh you know there's like ongoing lawsuits against for example uh this company san marco which is part owned by vale which is brazilian and part owned by bhp bhp is australian so there'll be some lawsuit about this damn mining disaster in australia and they'll start writing about it in their morning and we'll have to pick it up later and we'll communicate by email and say okay we're handing it off we're going to start updating mm. with what the brazilian side is is saying about this um for example so so yeah but i mean if it appears on the reuters wire you know it's uh, pretty much ironclad true i mean we do have corrections and stuff like that but uh, usually i don't uh, you know if if it's reuters we do have other information services that flow into this program and if it's from them like we would have to verify it but if it's from reuters you know we rely on our colleagues to always uh, do the best job you know right yeah. yeah no i asked more to get a sense of how sort of how synced uh, the virtual whatever internal system or this wire service is because we're trying to get a visual image of it i just asked because i wanted to know how how much person to person contact is still required how much of it is like a bot or uh, something on those lines oh, okay yeah i mean there's there are is some things that's automated a lot of the economic data and stuff like that is automated like they'll be monitoring web pages and if uh, you know the central bank posts x thing it knows how to automatically read it and automatically crap this sentence and put it out there uh so i mean that is more when it comes to data and things like that it's easier mm. for a computer to do there's some like sports 
stories that get or you got written by uh, algorithms or programs or whatever you want to say. At least we were experimenting with that. I don't know if that went anywhere, but that's pretty common. I mean, Associated Press was doing that too. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of these the standard like you know, they play whatever, 182 baseball games in a year. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't need, it's not rocket science. You can teach a computer how to write a story about that. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, but uh, by and large, I mean, where our value is, is, uh, you know, we're the humans who have to talk to other humans to get information to, to put it in the system because there, you know, that's how new information gets found out. Like, you know, somebody's got a find it out and put it on the internet and then it'll recirculate. So we're kind of, I like to think the gas in the machine that is going out and finding the new facts and feeding it in and, oh, you know, circulate around. And that um, part is still kind of pretty old school because it's real people uh, yeah, doing, doing it. The... That That's nice to hear. I guess I yeah, want to kind yeah. of also, I mean... because I asked also because what you do as a hobby yeah. is that part with more depth, right? Your podcast is basically you talking to journalists from all over the world, but at length. And it seems, it it always seems like a, a special format, long form podcast compared to uh, what you do on a daily basis. And... Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say I started the podcast. I, I thought I needed something outside of work, a project. And I thought, oh, I could write a book. You know, all journalists like want to write a book. It looks very good and things like that. But then I thought, you know, do I really want more work on top of my work? It feels like, you know, just more of the same. And so, you know, what is the most enjoyable part? It's the talking to people part. And maybe I can just do a podcast and just do the talking part and I don't have to worry about, you know, writing it into some cohesive thing later, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's just the conversation end of it. And I did it, uh, long form like that, largely inspired by the podcast WTF with Mark Marin, which is long form interviews and really stories of people's lives. And uh, what I realized about that is that's about comedians. And I didn't know 95% of the people when I first started listening. It's funny, I first started listening when I moved to China in 2011 or a little bit before 2010, maybe. And podcasting was pretty new. And Mark Barron wasn't a big deal. And like he was interviewing people who weren't big deals. And I had no idea who they were, but he would be like, get them to tell their life story. And you know, it didn't matter that I didn't know who they were. They had very interesting stories. So if you're interested in people like, you know, getting those uh, life stories can be interesting, even if you don't know who they are, they're not famous. And so I thought, oh, somebody, he's doing this with comedians. Somebody should do this with journalists. That kind of kicked around in my head for years um, until a friend of mine was like, listen, you gotta, you gotta do this or, or shut up about it. <laughs> so, uh, so I decided to do it. And, and a lot of people talk about like long form podcasts and things like that, which I guess would be the most similar thing to what I'm doing, which is interviews with journalists, but it was not, my podcast was in no way inspired by them at all. And like, I'll say WTF with Mark Marin, most journalists will be like, I don't even know what that is. Like, <laughs> Yeah. It's funny how that's such a big podcast, but at the same time, things are so compartmentalized. 
I'll say it to people and they'll be like, what? No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> No, but so, I mean, do you guys I, know what I'm talking about at least? <laughs> yeah, uh, I I know what you. I have heard Mark Maron's podcast Chirag quite knows. a bit, uh, but I I think what what is interesting to me, or I would say, I would point out to a difference is when Mark Maron does it, he is uh, he is also sort of constantly asking them questions, but it is almost this um, this idea of a chronology, you know. Whereas right, whereas yeah. whereas when I listen to foreign correspondents. There is a set of questions uh, which you which you come bring bring uh, to the podcast, which are I think largely the same across across all the guests. They don't just involve a sort of and then you did this and then you did that sort of a thing. You have developed at least for yourself a stable questionnaire of sorts, which you constantly uh, use on each of them. So I think that is an interesting difference. Can you tell us a little? It produces a lot of variation yeah. too. Like people answer. Very so differently. yeah, I mean, the first forty-five minutes or so of the finished product, I try to have be their life story. You know, that's more of the chronology, the end, then the end, then that. That's more of the like Mark Maron style part of it. And then we talk about a couple of stories, one that didn't work out and one that did. Yeah. And then I kind of have the lightning round, which is faster-paced questions, which. I guess, I don't know what that's more inspired by. It's like the back page of Vanity Fair or something like that, where they'd interview a famous person and just be like one sentence responses to a set list of questions or, or I haven't listened to it that much, but something like Desert Island Discs on BBC or something like that. Um, So, so yeah, it is kind of a hybrid and it's kind of a set list of questions. And if you listen to those old Mark Maron episodes, it would be more of a chronology and, but he's done like what a thousand plus. And so it's no longer that formula anymore for him. It's kind of more free form. I feel like he's, you know, achieved, you know, uh, such a fluidity, like, you know, he sees the matrix and he doesn't need (laughs) to, to like follow a format. And I, I wonder if, you know, my format is a crutch and if it will get boring and if, if at some point I'll, you know, I've done it enough that I kind of break out and do it a bit more free form. But uh, for now, I, I like the format and, you know, I am interested in these uh, same questions, like you change the person and I'm just as interested. Um, so I've done like, what, 42 of them? We'll see how many I can do before mm-hmm. I feel like I need to shake it up. You know, I mean, for me, the most important question or one of the most, I love this question, which is tell us about one story that you, that, that didn't work out also, you know, one which worked out and one which did work out. And I think that's, that is so, and then there was someone, I think, uh, who said that, that this story was something we wanted to do, but then funding wasn't there. Then someone else says I could have followed it, but then something else turned up or we couldn't quite finish it for whatever reason. But that highlights a sort of um, yeah, it, state. It captures the uncertainty of the job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, part of the podcast is formed in, in, in reaction to, say, long form which is a great podcast, but like, you know, it's, it's always talking to the people who wrote the long form article for the New Yorker or the New York mm-hmm. times or for, it's very much like only showing the tip top of the iceberg, the like 0.1% of the industry where everything is 
you know, an amazing epic success and all that. And, you <laughs> know, I want to show that. to the White House, yeah. Right. Day, day to day that, you know, for 99.9% .9 of journalists, this is not what it's like. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, kind of trying to show people what it, what it is really like and build up that picture one interview at a time, you know, uh, going to people in different places, different publications, different mediums. Um, and I'm still trying to expand, like I want to have a critic on and hopefully that'll happen soon. And I had somebody who covers sports and, um, yeah, constantly trying to think of new ways to expand it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, that. I mean, uh, when you also speak about uh, these journalists that you cover, what kind of um, uh, articles, you know, when they mention also about stories and stuff, they, they talk about, and most, more often than not, they are some of these stories that uh, don't end up making it are also these really long form kind of stories that, that they were trying to really uncover, unravel and, and stuff like that. So, I mean... I I want to know what kind of format of reporting is still very relevant and still catches a lot of uh, traction, viewership. Is it 11-minute uh, reads or these headlines that you did, that, that you do when oh. it comes to commodities and stuff? How I does mean, that happen? That's actually pretty interesting because, uh, I mean, I've, I haven't looked that deep into it, but I know there has been research done that what gets the most readership are the shortest articles and the longest articles. And it's actually the ones in between that people don't want to read. They either want to like buckle in. I want a long read. I want to know everything about this, or they want something they can scroll through on their phone with, you know, three flicks of their thumb, you know? Mm, yeah. uh, so, I mean, yeah. And in, in Reuters, they've kind of embraced that, you know, it can be a bit annoying. You'll want to write about some longer, about some smaller thing, but no, you've got to write a very short thing. But if you get approval, you can, you know, run really long with it if if they think it's worth it. So, um, how short so is it, short? It's pretty interesting. How short is short? Short is, I mean, breaking news. We usually write three hundred words or less, um, okay. which sounds very short and is very short. I mean, they're quick to write, but when you think about how many words can fit on a phone screen. Yeah, I, I get the logic. I get why it makes sense. But uh, uh, yeah, it's weird to think about when, you know, we're not a newspaper. It's not like we get to the end of the page and we can't do any more words. You know, we have to make a conscious choice. Like, yeah, we're going to cut it off at this thing because we it is un, unlimited. You know, yeah. it's the Internet. So uh, yeah. but, you know, then you you have to weigh, you know, cost benefit, how much time <laughs> you spend on these things. Um and that sort of thing. And how long is long, according to you, or according to the standards for that matter? I mean, uh, Reuters are right, you know, two, three thousand words. Like, you know, long, long form is like five, ten thousand words, um, I guess I would say, which, uh, you know, is like half an hour to an hour to read, I would say. Yeah. Mm, all right. And uh, so when it comes to these sort of, articles that we write do you think that or how important do you think is the headline still you know like making how do you how do you write a headline or yeah i mean headlines are extremely important they have to you know show some sort of action or show some sort of you know 
surprising fact. I mean, it depends. Like when it's real breaking news, like uh, Kim Kardashian files for divorce with Kanye. That's a long. What more do you need? Yeah, (laughs) what more do you need? Like the fact that I want to click on that story. You get approval for long form immediately after that. (laughs) I I actually, I'm curious if we wrote that story at Reuters uh, or not. I'd be interested to see. Pretty sure all three of us are going to Google it as soon as we're done with this. The the reason why I ask also about headlines uh, or whether it's. I know they are still relevant and you need to catch eyeballs, but you know, there are also hashtags now. Every news has like a, uh, everything you put out on Twitter comes with an accompanying hashtag. Every update has this thing. How do you choose a hashtag then? Or what is this tension between these two? I mean, I I don't use hashtags. Some journalists do, but I, I think hashtags are, you know, at least on Twitter are getting a little bit, uh, passe, like I'll see like certain people use them and it, it'll invariably be like older journalists and things like that. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't know that they got the memo that people aren't <laughs> using these as much. I mean, it certainly gets used for certain things, but I would say in general for like people following news stories, like, yeah, me too and things like that. But then you'll click on that to see more of what the discussion is than the news necessarily um, on Twitter. Whereas like, I think for news, people are still like just punching in like whatever the words are looking for trending topics and which aren't necessarily hashtag dependent. I mean, it just comes off as very, very thirsty. I guess I would say using hashtags is how it's perceived these days. So if you're... uh, Want perceive yourself as a cool young journalist, you don't necessarily use them. I, I do think it's different on Instagram. I think there are more hashtags there, but um, I don't know that hashtags are that important for journalists these but, days. But I think uh, within journalism, what do you then say would be the sites, like apart from the Reuters website and Twitter itself? Are there any more outlets through which you guys work your new work on disseminating your news? You, you mentioned Instagram, but I don't think that's any place for news anyways, right? Or? Um, well, I mean, Reuters has a, a huge photo staff and we actually win the most awards for our like international oh, yeah. photography. Okay. So there are definitely some huge Instagram accounts uh, of Reuters photos where they post like, you know, they just have such a huge base to draw from of material. Um, you know, wire services in general, I would say are some of the best photography because they just have the most people in the most places. And, you know, I can write from my desk in a pandemic, but, you know, a photographer has to get out there and and shoot what's happening. So, um, so, so yeah. And I mean, Reuters is a wire service. So we have media clients like, um, you know, in print, New York times is a media client. They'll use our stuff. Um, uh, you know, TV, I believe Al Jazeera and some others, you would be surprised. Like you definitely in Europe, since Reuters is much stronger in Europe, if you turn on the TV and see any footage, there's a good chance it's from Reuters and they won't (laughs) tell you that it's, you know, it's a wire service. They pay us to use it and, uh, they use it and they might even be using scripts that were written by my video colleagues. And, so uh, you probably see a lot of stuff from wire services and don't even know it. Um, mm. And it sounds like an online database that 
constantly update oh i guess that's what you just explained <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean no also but it sounds like cloud service like yeah orders is cloud service for other journalists it's like it's like the for us that's a weird thing to hear because we always think yeah the journalism or a tv news channel goes out there does its job comes out comes back and tells and then they compete amongst each other because they Who all got have their, their version of of truth or yeah. facts or whatever it is they claim I mean, they certainly do. I mean, all these channels, you know, they do have their own stuff, but, uh, you know, it's just like having a global footprint is more and more difficult these days and making money off of it. So, you know, uh, why not pick up a writer's feed and then instead of like flying our own video person there. But I mean, certainly in places like DC and things like that, everybody has their own people on the ground okay. um, or most do. I mean, if you're an American publication, but uh, I'm pretty sure like Swedish publications are picking up our video of the White House and stuff like that, you know? So yeah. um, it's kind of the connective tissue that isn't totally always seen in uh, the media industry. But like like I said, it's the gas and the engine that helps keep it running. And this, um, this particular uh, form of exchange has existed for... It has its own history? Has it existed for a while? Like... Um, let's say 70 years ago uh, were people picking up news from Reuters and publishing in Japan or something or I don't know so I can't remember exactly when Reuters started but it's about 150 years old I think mm -hmm. um, it was started by you know Baron something Reuters I should know his name off the top of my head but I, <laughs> I usually always say it wrong so I'll just leave it at Baron Reuters and he uh, would fly stock prices from Paris to London via carrier pigeon. And that was wow. kind of how they got their edge and financial information. Um, you know, really old school stuff. And like, you know, they were the first to get the news of, I believe, Lincoln's assassination to Europe because like, you know, they sent out a, a speedboat to capture the big boat coming in. Like they, you know, toss them, whatever the, the letters and whatever, and they got it back first before the ship got to port. You know, thing, there's little things like that. I mean, it's kind of funny to think back to. Um, but uh, yeah, information used to be a lot, a lot more scarce. So, you know, doing even these simple things had a big effect.